0: For more than two decades, Chris Matthews was one of the most recognizable personalities on cable television, the fast-talking, garrulous host of MSNBC's Hardball. But while Matthews is off the air now, his passion for politics and media punditry is anything but diminished. That shines through in his new memoir, This Country, My Life, and History, an account of a colorful career that includes stints as a White House speechwriter for Jimmy Carter and as the top aide to then House Speaker Tip O'Neill. For all the ferocious partisanship of those days, it was an era when arch rivals like O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could still work together, forge compromises, and even be friends. In short, an era very different from today. What has changed in American politics and the media, and why? We'll discuss with Matthews himself on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United
1: States, so help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So
2: help me God. So help me God. God.
0: So help me God.
3: I'm
2: Michael
0: Isikoff, Chief Investigative
3: Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we're all going to
0: have a challenge here, trying to get um, our words in with our uh, garrulous guest, Chris Matthews, uh, been on a show many times and... Um, I uh, got lots of comments, but the consistent theme was, does he ever let you finish your sentences? Um, but I think we'll have a little more control this time. Uh, I don't
3: know. I mean, the tables are, we you know, you think the tables are turned here and we're going to be doing the the, uh, the, yeah. the question, we're going to control the mic, but somehow <laughs> I'm not so
0: sure.
2: He's not accustomed to being interviewed. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, um,
0: but there's lots to talk about with him and he's... He has had um, quite an uh, extraordinary career in the media and in politics. But before we get to that, we just have to take notice of the um, fascinating tweets from Maggie Haberman of The New York Times, uh, sort of the Trump whisperer of the Trump era, who reports that Trump uh, down there in Florida is telling folks he expects to be reinstated as president by August. Apparently, he somehow thinks that this audit that's being done in um, Maricopa County in Arizona is somehow going to reverse the results of the election and, um, we'll get him reinstated. Uh, my favorite, uh, comment on that, uh, was, uh, I think from Matthew Dowd, the pollster who tweeted that rather than reinstated, what Maggie probably meant was institutionalized. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so
3: this is the perennial question with Trump that I've, I had for four years of his presidency and I still have is, What does he actually believe? I mean do you think there's any chance that he at this point is so deluded uh, that he he does actually believe he's going to be reinstated? There is no – uh, constitutional
2: path yeah, uh, to for, for, the, for the avoidance of any doubt there yeah. is no legal or constitutional way for him to be reinstated as really? president of the United yeah. States. I've been flipping through there's the constitution there's not anywhere in there that there's I, I've been no reading it pretty carefully today yeah. there's nothing the there that's why we got home. you
3: on this podcast that we needed a really good Crack constitutional lawyer exactly. yeah To answer those uh, difficult questions.
0: But, you know, look, I think there's a positive out of this, which is that, um, you know, you have Republican members of Congress and, you know, who have indulged Trump uh, up until now, trying not to walk away too much from him, you know, suggesting maybe there were election integrity issues without quite endorsing, you know, the whole stop the steal movement. But I think that. You know, one would think that talking about reinstatement as president is so off the charts and bizarre that it might give even Republican members of Congress some pause about how much latitude they give Trump. So
3: here's my question, uh, Victoria. Uh, If if he is indeed reinstated, (laughs) does the uh, does the does the clock reset? (laughs) <laughs> and does uh, Trump get to serve out four full years or does he just what, – what happens? Does he serve out Biden's term, the <laughs> remainder of Biden's
2: term? Well uh- – I, I, the, the Constitution, at least, is pretty clear about that, that the uh, presidents are inaugurated uh, in, in January and their terms begin and end then. So I don't think he gets to serve out. He, he doesn't get to extend his term. Um, I, I, look, All I right. Think, enough I,
0: of this nonsense. I'm only concerned if doing something
2: like that is going to
0: disrupt other life cycles like the cicadas who are coming out now. <laughs> I mean, is this going to, like, throw them off if Donald Trump is— reinstated as president.
2: As funny as it is, you know, probably he began this delusion that he has was was fed further by the QAnon conference that occurred this weekend, where two of his favorite, you know, in his cast of characters, former uh, General Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell, his one of his lawyers in the reelection, you know, gave interviews. And Trump was probably live streaming the QAnon conference and seeing both of them, you know, kind of natter on about how Trump could get reinstated or how I suppose a Myanmar like coup could occur in the United States. And unfortunately, this kind of delusion is not just in Donald Trump's head. It's also in the heads of possibly millions of Americans who are full on believers of this nonsense. So... You know, as as funny as Trump is, it's also it's it's kind of a like a little bit of a disturbing glimpse into the mindset of a lot of Americans.
3: Well, yeah, and and you know, we were talking before about there not being any constitutional or legal path to Trump being uh, reinstated. But what what is the unconstitution illegal path. It's it's a military coup. Right. And um, that is something that uh, people in Trump's circle, notably uh, General Michael Flynn, has flirted with in the past.
0: Yeah. Flynn said something at the conference, which he's now walking away from, suggesting he was
3: he was he was there could be a
0: coup like there was in Myanmar. Recently. Right. He
3: he was asked at this at this conference uh, whether because apparently the QAnon people are obsessing over the Myanmar coup and they think that that is a uh, something that could happen here. And he was asked point blank. Could that happen here? Could there be a Myanmar style coup? And his answer was no reason, quote, why there couldn't be. And he said, in fact, there should be. And now he is walking away from that, saying that his words were twisted by the fake media. But. Remember, there is a context here. He – you know, Mike, you remember it was at least widely reported that an Oval Office meeting uh, after the election – Flynn talked about bringing military capabilities into some of these swing states to recount the vote. He's talked about
0: that publicly at the time. He said, you know, there are ways to redo the election. And then you had people like Patrick Byrne, who was at one of those meetings in the Oval Office uh, telling Trump, yes, uh, there were paths to overturn the election. And Byrne has been Saying much the same thing ever since, along with, you know, the pillow guy, Mike Lindell. So there are, you know, there are these folks who talk to him, who are in his, you know, circle that, um, you know, say these things. But, you know, look. I I wanted to bring this up so we could all have a few laughs. I don't think we should take this too seriously. I'm fairly confident uh nobody fairly, in the American he's political not, system is. You, you don't think is, he's
2: going to get reinstated? I don't. You're going to uh, put I it out there.
0: That's, uh, I don't think that's likely. <laughs> uh Hey, uh, Victoria, you had one other point you wanted to make before we get to Chris Matthews about uh this date in history. We are taping this June 1st. It's this an anniversary the- that we should mention.
2: So this is. Is the first anniversary of the uh, the clearance of Lafayette Park last year, which uh, if uh, people don't remember, and I, it's, I find it hard to believe anyone could not remember, uh, was the, the moment when the uh, National Park Service, as well as uh, several other federal law enforcement agencies used tear gas, they now admit used tear gas uh, to clear out thousands of peaceful protesters at Lafayette Square so that uh, President Trump could march to a... Uh, a church and hold up a copy of the Bible.
0: Yeah. And, and let's remember the fallout from that aside from it, you know, appearing as this sort of grotesque assertion of power. So Trump could go to the church and hold up the Bible upside down. The fallout continued right through to January 6th when people in the Pentagon and the National Guard and the uh, army were very nervous about calling up the National Guard for protection of the U.S. Capitol because of the blowback they got from the Lafayette Square debacle.
3: Yeah, and by the way, uh, if we're talking about anniversaries on on this day, the anniversary that rightly um, is dominating the news and the American conversation right now is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race. Massacre in um, 1921 when um, the Greenwood um, District of Tulsa, which was an affluent uh, black uh, district, the black Wall Street it was known as, was razed. Uh, to the ground, um, bombed actually by civilian planes. And as many as 300 Black Americans were killed there. So this is an, an important day to remember.
0: Which, by the way, is not something I remember reading about or learning about when I took American history in school.
3: No, no none of us did and even then it it it's been it's been somewhat halting and there're still fights about what gets taught in the schools in in, uh, in in Tulsa and and now there are arguments about uh what kind of justice uh should be served whether there ought to be uh, reparations uh but the first move toward justice is um is transparency and uh and and public discussion and and, yeah. and remembrance and that is Finally, happening um, now. And um, so that is a good thing.
0: All right. Well, uh, lots to talk about with our distinguished guests. So let's get to it. Okay. We now have with us our old friend Chris Matthews, for years the host of Hardball and now the author of This Country My Life in Politics and History. Um, Chris, welcome to Skullduggery.
1: You've had many a volume I've had in my hands over the years. I <laughs> always enjoy touting them because you're a good guest to come on and tout them yourself. Although you've always been kind of hesitant to, to be proud of your work, you, you do the investigative reporting and then you feel v- vaguely guilty about discovering the sins that you unearthed. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, story, it's I always like
0: shy manner, you know, unassuming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right, so. You know, there's lots to talk about in your book. I mean, you had years as a Politico, speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. You worked for Tip O'Neill. You moved into the world of media and became this, you know, huge cable TV host. But I want to start out just uh, with one passage from your book that really leapt out at me. And it's from your time working for Tip O'Neill. You were his uh, lieutenant, uh, basically in charge of messaging. Yeah, I had the uh, title
1: administrative assistant and the pay scale administrative assistant, which is usually the top job. My real job, however, was wartime consigliere.
0: Yes, right. And bashing Ronald Reagan. Yeah. During the day, he was the president. But when it came time to the evening, Reagan and Tip O'Neill were buddies. They were friends. There's a quote you have in there from Reagan. Giving a tribute to Tip O'Neill at the St. Patrick's Day dinner in 1986, um, I'm grateful you've permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future that singular honor—the honor of calling you my friend—I think the fact of our friendship is testimony to the political system that we're part of and the country that permits to, you know us to do this. Um, that seems so. Long ago and far away from where we are today. What explains where we were then with where we are now? Michael,
1: it started, I wanted to try to explain that uh, through with a through line from Vietnam to Watergate to everything since. And people ask me, when did it really get stinky? When did it really get to the point? And I tell you, there's a lot of emotion here. There's a fight. You know, people say, We argue over issues. No, we fight over the fight. Once you get fighting and once it becomes zero sum, you don't really need an issue anymore. I mean, look look at Trump today. Is he a free trader or a protectionist? The Republican Party will take any any side he takes as long as they're on his side. That's what's changed. It isn't issues of free trade or even the usual issues of fiscal responsibility and, and, and spending and progressive activism. It isn't what we've grown up thinking were important things to fight about. It's the fight, and why is that though? The Trump people hate liberals; they hate them, and it's, <clears> it's and some of it you can figure out. You can blame a bit of it on the liberals themselves. their high intellectualism; they in elite educations that give them a certain hauteur. Uh, you can blame some of it on them. A lot of it's race, immigration, ethnicity, the denial of the fact that this is a diverse country ethnically. It has been for a long time, and it's going to be more so. There's a lot of Bad reasons that the right is the right, and there's some understandable reasons, but um, it's the fight now. They don't like each other. Yeah, and I and I and I don't want to overcomplicate it, but it had something to do in the beginning with Vietnam. Vietnam was started by well, technically Ike, then Kennedy, definitely eighteen thousand advisors, then definitely LBJ with five hundred thousand troops, and then immediately the Democrats lost the election in '68. The minute they lose the election, they're anti-Vietnam. Well, wait a minute here, and they blame it all on Nixon. And Nixon's trying to get out, trying to get out. Would refuse to call it quits because that would have cost him his second term, and he had been through who lost China and all that. But the bitterness began with that. Then Watergate, I think the Republicans all felt that the Democrats rolled up the score on that one. Are you kidding me? Wiretapping. Excuse me, Bobby Kennedy. Excuse me, J. Edgar Hoover. Wiretapping was going on before. Uh, breaking into headquarters had gone on before. Nixon's headquarters broken in when he was running for the House. I mean, this is po- dirty politics, but it's not brand new. But uh, the hatred is so big. Because I used to say, you know where you really saw it, guys, in the whip readings. In the back room with no cameras on, the, 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 almost like an old-time cowboy with the Indian War Council the night before the big war. It was almost like that. It was like Hollywood's idea of partisanship. The yelling. The each guy trying to show he's more nasty and more unforgiving than the other guy. Maybe it was too many glazed donuts in the mornings. I don't know. But it was those meetings were charged up, Michael. You would have loved to have seen them because it looked like what it was from the outside.
3: But I want to follow up on uh, the premise of Isikoff's, uh question because I can kind of see our younger listeners. You know, rolling their eyes about the uh, the so called halcyon days when Tip and Reagan would have their scotch at the end of the day, and well, that's, you know, that and that and, is
1: that is the bullshit part of it. I'm sorry, that's right? Well, yeah, that's not true, because they weren't buddy buddy. But you know, here's my speech on this: two old guys knew it was their last act. Two guys from different parties, different backgrounds, completely different classes, and the way they lived. said, here's Social Security. Ronald Reagan says, we've been beaten over the head with this issue for so many years. I'm tired of taking it. I've been taking it all the time. Let's get it behind us. Tip O'Neill saying, OK, we've got as much out of this issue as we could politically. Let's end it. So they get the go down Greenspan. They cut the deal. They slow down the COAs. They raise the taxes. They put some of it taxable. They cut the deal. They save Social Security. Tax cuts. We want lower rates, but we got to get rid of all this crappy, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, loopholes. Let's do it together. Jim Baker and Ross put it together. On the Cold War, that was an easy one. They both were cold warriors. They wanted to get over with, tip back Reagan on it. They didn't hang out and be, first of all, Reagan hardly drank. Tip didn't drink at work. I know these are Irish slurs, of course, but they really are. (laughs) But none of of it's true. But, you know, they did make a point. Reagan said to me the first time I met him, I said to him in the the green room, where you've been, Michael, many times, the Speaker's ceremonial room. And he was about to give a speech. And I said, Mr. President, welcome to the room where we plot against you. And Reagan said, oh, no, not after six. We're all friends after six, the Speaker says. You know, that's true. Some of the some of the uh, malarkey or the, what, what they call it, the sentiment. But basically, they cut deals. And uh, what's changed the politics, it used to be you'd vote for Republicans in big states like Pennsylvania when they get tired of the crooked Democrats. And too much corruption, let's bring in this. Same thing in 52. Too much fair deal, too much Truman, let's give us Eisenhower. Now, instead of trying to keep each other honest, police each other. They try to make sure the other guy doesn't get credit for anything. And that's really what's going on right now. They don't want Biden to become a famous president, successful transformer of the president. The Republicans don't want that. So they're going to vote against everything.
3: But also, isn't it the case that the bigger, bigger parts of, of both parties don't want them to cut deals any, anymore? They want them to be bold.
1: The donors don't. You know why? Because those donors have been, proud, have been promised friendship. This is the thing that makes me pretty sick. Okay, so you give a guy ten thousand dollars or one million dollars, and they're going to become your social friend. Now, how can you be seen with the other side if you're the social friend of the person you just gave ten k to? So they all have to act like they don't like each other. It's all performance art. Why do they? Why do people give money? Because they don't have social lives in many cases. They give money to politicians to get a social life, and they oh, we're friends with the Clintons. Oh, we're friends with Obama. We're friends with you know, what friends means I give them a lot of money. And that's what's going on. That's all this thing with the, uh, well, you know what's going on. It's it's, it's this donorship married to political philosophy, married to social life, and people give huge amounts of money. And these politicians need these huge amounts of money. And so what they do is trade their friendship for it.
2: Okay, and you're so not
1: supposed to be seen.
2: I wonder if, if some of this goes back to kind of one of those old Tip O'Neill sayings, which is that all politics is local. And maybe like politics isn't local anymore is it just all national now is it just is it just one giant national you know kind of mud mud fight I have two brothers who are trumpies
1: out of four first election in 2016 i lost three brothers to this all right explain it any way you want i got one brother in my side, he's the most common sense member of my family he always votes the way that the country's going to vote because he's already decided to vote that way he just is mr mineral road type i guess one of them, uh, switched from, uh, Trump and his wife, Claire, Claire Kennedy, switched to, um, to Buttigieg because they, they thought the reality of Trump was you couldn't just vote against the Democrats. You were voting for Trump when you got stuck with him. You realize how bad he was. So he went to Buttigieg. Um, and she did too. Uh, my other brother stuck with him. My, I have a brother with a Mar-a-Lago, what do you call it? A, a, a make America great again hat on. I can't help it. I mean, <laughs> I got another brother's an NRA member. I mean, that's Pennsylvania. It just is the state of Pennsylvania.
0: You need you need to get them together with Maureen Dowd's family. They're the same oh, it's State Deal. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Or, or, or cop and brothers. Yeah. And, and that, that case gets down to what is it, resentment. I think it's it down to resentment. Uh, one of my brothers, is a country club Republican. He just, it's one everybody, it's all about tax rates. You know what it is, Mike. It's, it's a lot of the Republicans are Republicans because of tax rates. They don't want to be taxed. Yeah. And then there's cloth coat Republicans who just resent liberal Democrats. But they also
0: feel very strongly, if you talk to them, that the media is biased, is irredeemably liberal, is uh, doesn't give Republicans a fair break at all. And they would point to MSNBC, where well, you worked for
1: two decades <laughs> as the prime I, example. MSNBC is fairly obviously a, a pro-progressive, but... Uh, I remember interviewing Cronkite guys when he retired. And I said, you're a liberal, aren't you? He said, yeah. Everybody thought he was a liberal. But one of my brothers who voted, liked to watch the CBS News every night, said, yeah, he's a liberal. And I know he's a liberal. He's always been a liberal. always will be. But he's the best reporter in television. And I trust him. So do you think we ought to be more open about it? Do we ought to be better at it? I think the truth, the whole truth and nothing but, like a Perry Mason, tell the truth. But don't just tell your truth. I don't think people lie, but they tell one point of view with the, with the truths you got to get out to admit, is inflation going to come as a result of spending trillions of dollars? Probably yes. Is, is crime going to rise because cops are intimidated now, or maybe properly intimidated? Yes. There's a downside to every one of these progressive uh, movements. Uh, there is going to be a downside. Admit the side effects like we do on the, you ever listen to those uh, medicine commercials? Well, they say side effects might include death. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Painful death, suffocation. Well,
1: I would say it'd be nice if somebody admitted that you're spending $7 trillion or whatever. You're, you're going to spend more than the national, uh, the national uh, the, uh, G, G, what do you call it? The uh, GDP. Uh, GDP. And you're going to go over that. We're, we're getting beyond the, uh, the fold here. And uh, I think you got to be careful about big spending. It's every other country side. This country is very sensitive to a place where, like the Germans, that way, we're not Brazil. We do not, look what happened. In, I mean, everybody goes after Larry Summers, but he said the other day, look what happened in 66. Look what happened in 80. Democrats run up inflation, they're gone. And I think that's one thing to think about. The other is crime. You tell a cop, don't get involved in disputes. Well, he'll, he'll stay in the car. And I know there's everything's done, has been wrong. It has to be fixed, but you got to convince the cop to do his job, or her job. Okay,
0: to but to, just to get back to my you know sort what the of mega.
1: Is, it's not, I just want to go back to my belief. Yeah. It's not that they don't tell the truth on both sides. They find the truth that's convenient to right. their point of view.
0: Okay. But as a matter of tactics, I just want to come back to my you know original question. How did we get from where we were back then where... People like Reagan and Tip O'Neill could cut deals and could work together and could forge compromises to get things done to where we are today, where none of that seems okay, possible. Okay. And the Democrats, let me just finish the question here. The Democrats are now facing this, you know, internal debate about do they get rid of the filibuster, just tell the tell the Republicans to take a hike, we've got this slender majority, we're going to enact our agenda that we want, you know, uh, hell be damned, or do they go the compromise route to try to get back to the days of Reagan and Tip O'Neill? What's the answer?
1: Well, the answer is uh, we've got a filibuster, which will always work as long as we live, because- I've been counting there's ruby red states. It only takes 21 ruby red states to work the filibuster. All you need is 40-some votes. And it's open. there's nothing's going to happen. And that's where we're at right now. So you got to deal. We're not going to get 60 votes on the Democratic side in our, in our reasonable future. We're not going to get 60 votes on the Democratic side. So live with that. It's not going to happen because it can't geographically happen given the, uh, the way the Senate's set up. It's not Democratic, lowercase Democrat or anything. So a couple of things. Tip and Reagan were able to work. A couple of things they had going for them. If Tip said something, you know this, Michael, if Tip said something, the liberals would go along with it. He was, he was so credible as a liberal that if he wanted to cut a deal that wasn't exactly liberal, like putting troops in Lebanon, which we all wished we hadn't done, but he could do it because he was Tip O'Neill. The liberals trusted him. Reagan was the same way. If he said we're going to cut a deal on social security, we're going to cut the deal. Uh, his, he could bring his people aboard. The leaders today are not leading anymore. You got to tell me that Kevin McCarthy's a leader. He's leading anybody. No, he's got his wet finger in the air, that's what he is. So you need a leader that can lead. Who on the Republican side say, you know, we gotta do something on infrastructure, it's got nothing to do with partisanship, this country's falling apart, we got bridges falling apart, we gotta do something, I'm sorry we're gonna do it. I don't know a Republican that has the, the stuff to do that right now. The, the, the second thing is, I think people have to love politics again, I, and now how the game is played and played a little more aggressively on the Democrat side. I mean, the Democrats somehow seem like they're playing defense. And this thing in Texas the other day, it's probably the first time they acted like they're playing, op, op, they're playing aggressive politics. You know, when I was there, Michael, and we were fighting over infrastructure, I called the chief engineer of Peoria, Bob Michaels district, and I asked the guy to give me a list of all the bridges below safety code. So Tip goes on the floor of the House and reads the names and addresses of all the bridges in Peoria, the home state, home city of the Republican leader of the House, who'd been blasting infrastructure bills, and said, these are the bridges below safety code. It drove Bob Michael crazy. We won the bill. We won the argument. We won 26 seats. I think you got to do, why don't they do that today? Why doesn't Pelosi stand on the floor and read, Mr. Uh, McCarthy, let me tell you about the situation of infrastructure in your district in California. X many bridges, X many tunnels, X many highways are in serious danger of school buses falling off over the river. Do the same thing to, to Kentucky. Take the fight to them about the issue of infrastructure, which is not a word, a stupid Latinate word, infrastructure. It's about keeping up. Your property, your public property, so it's safe. Uh, I don't understand the difference between the, Republicans. You know, have always been for infrastructure. This is a stupid argument because Republicans have loved pork barrel. They've loved fixing up stuff at home and spending stuff to work thing at home. It's not even a bit of left. Infrastructure is not left wing. It's just not. And I don't know why they can't beat the Republicans by bringing up the the danger of not fixing stuff up anymore. That's aggressive politics.
3: Back to this same question that Mike's been asking. Do you actually see a way in which we do go back to being able to compromise? I mean, is, are these just sort of cycles of history and 20 years from now, like our children uh, who, if they go into politics, will be uh, will be getting stuff done and, and cutting deals? Or are we beyond being able to repair the situation?
1: I don't know. I wonder how much of a fool Trump can make of himself before they drop him as a lodestar or whatever. This new thing with Trump, two-thirds of the voters in the Republican Party who self identifies as Republican, this is different than it was two, three years ago, say they don't accept Joe Biden's legitimacy. Well, that started with Trump saying he didn't accept Barack Obama's legitimacy, that he was born in Africa and snuck in here somehow. Uh, it was his own re- rejection of the 2020 election. I mean, this is a brand of... Uh, Obstructionism, I've never heard of a party say we're not gonna vote for anything for the other side, anything, I mean, you know, Bill Kristol did that with the health bill back in the 90s. I want We're gonna kill whatever they put up, and they succeeded, and it worked. They not only got Hillary, they nailed her, but they nailed her failure of what she was trying to do. I I think we do, look, I'll just agree with you about one thing, the premise. If they can get 50 votes for reconciliation after they fail at this latest effort to try to put together a true uh, infrastructure bill, if they do have a 50 vote Democratic vote to pass with the vice president, an infrastructure bill to spend a lot of money, it'll get through the parliamentarians because it's a big fiscal bill and it's going to happen. After that, I don't think we're going to see any legislation until the next election. We're not going to get voter reform. We're not going to get police reform. We're not getting immigration reform and certainly no gun control. And the Democrats will face what the Republicans want to face them with, the three issues they want. Mitch McConnell wants total failure by the Biden administration, legislation, total failure, so that the Biden has to face the voters with three things, rising crime in the cities, inflation, and the border. It's the old Republican trick of three bad issues for the other side. This goes back to crime, corruption, and uh, was communism, Korea, and uh, corruption. I mean, they always have, it goes back to Murray Chotner, Nixon's guy says, Make all elections about the three things that people can think about. Make sure they're all about your opponent and they're all negative. And that's what that's what Mitch is up to. Maybe the Republicans, the Democrats should say that's what this whole election is being built on. All right. Let's talk a little about Trump. Because... As you write
0: in the book, he was a regular on hardball. Yeah. You had no problem getting him on. Uh, he was a great guest. Oh, oh. You enjoyed having him on. And then he turned into the president that he turned into. Explain to the best that you can, Trump. And was it always apparent that he would be as delusional as he has become?
1: Well, he went to business school in his undergraduate years. He never went to college. Okay, get that straight. That's a very important thing about Trump. You not he he never, he never took history, philosophy. He never took yeah. uh, anything about humanities. He never took any literature. He has no sense of the American notion of what we are as a country. He has no knowledge or understanding. I mean, literally none. He not only didn't understand what the pro-life position was, he didn't know anything. He doesn't have any sense of reverence for where we came from or what we believe in. He's just a business guy. And just a, and I don't know what kind of business guy, but that's all he is. I discovered in my first interviews with him. I went back and looked at the transcripts. I couldn't believe it. He said when tra- when uh, Bill Clinton got in trouble for Monica, he said all he should have done is take the Fifth. Well, what kind of a con man was that? Making an offer like that? Oh, there's great advice. The president of the United States should take the Fifth <laughs> Amendment. Oh, he's going to look like a, he's going to look like a mobster. Uh, it didn't bother him, or he's going to say, just say Ken Starr's no damn good, so I'm not dealing with it. And then no, instead, him,
0: Clinton lied <laughs> rather than take the fifth. Yeah, he just said right. he, he was
1: rattier than anybody. And then he said, when John Kerry, with everything in John Kerry, he did serve in war, he did get shot at, and they turned him into a, this bad guy. And Trump said, That was great. Look how they killed the hero part of him, but he thought it was great. They smeared him. And, and Trump said, This is great. I mean, he told us his character ahead of time, and you know. I didn't always, every time his assistant would get on the phone with me to set up an interview or something, I'd say, he's not running. Come on, he's not running. And they were teasing me with this for, for cycle after cycle. And finally, he surprised us all by actually running in 2016. I thought he was doing it for the same reason everybody else thought he did, for PR, you know?
3: Well, so did he, right? I mean, he thought, he didn't think he was going to win, right?
1: <laughs> I don't think he thought that night. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what's, your name? what's your name called me that night and said how are we doing in Pennsylvania? They didn't know. They didn't know at all.
2: Is he going to run again in 2024 or is he just going to milk this for as long as he can?
1: He's got to watch the cheeseburgers. <laughs> he just keeps putting it on. I mean, I, I'll say it. It's, why is he doing it? Because nobody tells him not to. He doesn't listen to anybody. And a serious question. Does he, he want to run again? Sure he does. We like being president. And uh, I, I think that the Republican Party will run him if he wants it. Who's going to beat him? The Santis? Somebody who beats him has to be a Trumpite. So it's got to be somebody close to him, like, or even more. Suppose you're a neocon or a hawk, hawkish person like uh, Nikki Haley, who I thought was a very interesting candidate, because I think the first woman will probably be a conservative president. But, you know, who knows? But uh, I think uh, she's broken with him. Maybe that's the smart move, break with him, but to seem like him. Tom Cotton's not going to be president. That guy from uh, Missouri's not going to win. Howie's not going to win. Who's got the charisma? Him. There's nobody else in the party. By the way, the Democratic fight could be interesting, too. We'd have no yeah, one. I going to say, is Biden going to run again? We don't know whether Kamala will turn into a great candidate or not. I can bet you that uh, the governor of California is probably looking at it. Sure he is. And uh and there's probably Democrats out there looking at it, too. If Kamala, if look, there'll be a wide primary no matter what. If it's Kamala, she'll be front runner for a while, but she'll get challenges. Of course, that's you're
0: you're, assu- you're assuming Biden isn't going to run, try and run for reelection.
1: I guess I am, but I don't think it means anything. What I know, I'm just. Yeah, no, I'm just saying. I think you, you and know, I, re- you guys all remember what we were thinking when he ran. He was running as sort of a one termer. And that sort of changed because he's been very feisty and gung ho. and He's been very active. And we'd like to think we live forever.
0: Yeah, At uh, some point, he's got to decide, you know, shortly after 2022, whether he's going to do it or not. I
1: think he has to decide by January 23, wouldn't you think? 23? Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, when he decides, uh, Bozzi says, my current intention is to run again. He'll keep the field narrow. But um, Kamala Kamala Harris has to be thinking all these months between now and then what happens if something happens to him. Uh, Every vice president thinks of that and they have to think about what they would do at that moment when they have to move harry truman got the call he was over hanging around with you know sam rayburn in the in the board of education building over where they drank and he gets the call the white house press secretary comes over and tells him the president's dead you're president of the united states i mean who knows you know
3: who who do you think is the future of the democratic party i mean who uh, getting beyond the people who might run in 2024 like, like, you know, an AOC or um, who, who, who do you think people should think about for potential uh, presidential candidates
1: a little bit further down the line? Well, right now, it's going to have to be a fusion ticket as far as we see that in the future. I think you're going to have to be a, uh, some combination of progressive and uh, mainstream and uh, the progressive voice is loud right now and it hasn't gotten hurt by anything lately. They're, they're doing really well and they're growing. Um, that's why I didn't think Biden would win the nomination, because I thought two-thirds of the Democrats were progressives. But I do believe a chunk of the progressives decided they could get a better chance at a program through of some kind if they get elected, which is smart. And they, the they went to get elected, they picked the, the one moderate standing that they could get through. But they still had their progressive agenda. And I think that uh, that's not a, that was a pretty sophisticated way of looking at things, a moderate Democrat with a progressive agenda. That seems to what we have. So I would think that uh, uh, we'll see how well this term goes. If he can get through a, let's face it, put the bright side. If he gets through a fiscal program after, the next, after July, if he has a uh, infrastructure bill, which is big and helps the economy, and we go into next year's election with moderate inflation and a healthy uh, growth rate, uh, he has a good chance of holding the Congress. It's going to be tricky. And I, I, I think Biden... He's gotten the best team I can imagine around him. I think Ron Klain may turn out to be as good as Jim Baker was with Reagan. Kept him disciplined, kept him focused on the big fiscal issues. You don't see him crying about minimum wage every day. He tried. It didn't work. He may try again. But he keeps his mind and his focus completely on the big issues of infrastructure and COVID relief and big spending and really try to change the fiscal policy of the country to a very progressive direction. And he's keeping the focus there. He's talking about the other stuff only enough to keep the uh, conversation alive. But he really knows that the name of the game is going to be fiscal. And if he can get the economy rolling by next uh, by next summer, he can win uh, a second term for the Democrats for somebody. But it's very much like Jim Baker. Ryan klein has been a star. So I, I want to. Go back to my
0: questions about you know what's gone wrong with our politics and how did we get from where we were to where we are now? And one big factor, and I want you to be honest about this. And I'm and one on a big fight. change <laughs> I have is the only
1: got on the list of all the Democrats who voted for the Iraq War: Joe uh, Biden, uh, Hillary, yeah, yeah, Trump, yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. Mean, the whole list that voted
0: for the. <laughs> we North we've Iraq. discussed that on Hardball. Um, one big factor is. The rise of cable news and the role of cable news, in which the formula for cable news is not terribly dissimilar than the algorithms used by Facebook and other social media. Get people angry. Give them red meat about the other side. Get them worked up. That's what jacks up your ratings that's what keeps people engaged and that's what has contributed to making american politics a you know a, a, a an arena for food fights rather than legitimate debate okay as a guy who was was you know the face of cable news for many years what do you make of that critique
1: well i was uh, probably best known for my d- d- a duel with a uh Zell Miller, Uh, that was pretty loudly uh, approved. I mean, people like that kind of fight. There's a classic sort of fight on the air where a guy said, I'm so angry at you, I want to challenge you to a duel. So that was a big moment. The fact that I said I had a throw up my leg because at a speech that uh, Barack Obama gave after after he won DC, Virginia, and Maryland, and talked about we got to get rid of the mindset that took us into Iraq. I was thrilled by that presidential nomination and uh, that whole campaign. I think I've been very tough on the Iraq war, very tough on the hawkishness of of W. And then I I was very excited about Barack Obama. I think, uh, I have to tell you, I didn't do it to beat the drum. I don't think I'm known as a drum beater. I am not a hard lefty, for example. I, no,
0: no, I, I wasn't necessarily talking about well, I thought you said I was the as face an individual. Of the, well, you were
1: a face of cable news, but I, I, I'm really i really just like trying to know, get you all to all address go, go, the critique. Time. I've been off the air for, since last February. When people come up to me, they always say the same things. And I haven't been able to get around because of the pandemic. But when they do, more people out in the streets now, by the way, and it's nice. and. They come up to me, they say one of two things. For years they said, I like the way you don't let them get away with anything. They like the aggressive third kind of question, not just one question, not the two questions, but the third question, just keep doing Being a little bit obnoxious to get the question answered. Sometimes that works, would certainly worked with, with, a, with Trump. When Trump comes out and saying, I want women to be punished for abortion decisions, okay, fine. That shows how ludicrous off base he is. But, but also they would say, I miss you, which is very affectionate. Or my husband watched you to the very end. I think some of us are known for being good company. And people just like to be on, to spend their time with me for an hour every night. I think a lot of it's just familiarity and, and comfort with certain people. But Chris, Chris, the, it isn't what Mike about, was asking I about. I like the way you rouse me up. I don't have anybody ever say, I love the way you excite me.
3: But 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 that story about Zell Miller is instructive in terms of the incentives on cable news, because, you know, you wrote a letter afterwards to Zell Miller saying that you regretted that uh, confrontation. But it right? wasn't
1: all my fault. I I regretted the fact that right. it the end of that match of uh, of ego.
3: But while it was happening, Rick Kaplan, not just your producer, who I think was our, our friend Tammy Haddad, but the president of MSNBC is in your ear saying Savor it, stretch it out.
1: Him. No, he was saying, keep him on the line. Like one of these, uh, you know, the police, the old detective procedure movies where they catch the guy. <laughs> keep the guy in the line. We think we got him traced. We think because it's phone booths these days. Don't in. let him off the hook. It's I good know, TV. It's all true. It's all true. <laughs> you, got you got the miracle on Thirty Fourth Street,
0: but isn't that okay? I'm going to be a little obnoxious here, Chris. No, I mean, isn't that? I think I doesn't think that support because, what because I was Michael, saying? What I'm trying to
1: get you to address you're not, is no, I'm addressing the incentives of cable I, I, news. I, I said at the time that to the on this is all on television. By the way, this is like secretly hatched out. I said, come on over tomorrow night. We'd like to have you over here. The people would like it. I got to warn you, it's a dangerous neighborhood. These are tough over here. Yeah, I was 20. I was having fun because he had just gone in the air and blamed the media for everything that was wrong with America, saying it wasn't the, it wasn't the media that fought for the First Amendment. It was the soldier. I said, OK, we owe our freedoms to the soldier. OK, but don't knock the media. And uh, freedom is freedom. And uh, yeah, I've been honest about it. That was television, great television. But do you think I got him to do that performance? If I'm going to. Have a duel with you? (laughs) No, No, I I think the point is that's great
0: television because it produces great ratings. And that's how you get measured in cable news.
1: Well, then I didn't do a good job because I'm sort of a moderate Democrat and I wasn't really good at playing the fringe. Uh, I did. not I always the reason I think people like me because I was candid. I've always been candid. I I tell people what, what you see is what you get. I call them as I see them. I'm the same person off the air as on the air. I'm a hard person to figure out. There are a couple of liberal issues like anti-war and voter suppression. I'm a total lefty on it, you might say. You might say, although I don't think I am. And there are other issues I'm much more moderate about. And um, I try to be honest. I do not say I'm gonna stake out this position because it's gonna make a lot of noise on TV tonight. I'm not like that. You can't find a case where I ginned up a fight artificially. I never did. I think there is a real fight right now of over voter suppression. I really think there are people in this country that do not believe in majority rule right now. They don't. Every indication is they want elect- people to win elections who didn't get the most votes. And they don't want mo- all the people to vote. They don't want everybody voting. It's pretty clear. Then you have this Michael Flynn, whatever the hell he's talking about <laughs> the other day. You can I mean, He's got to come out and explain it more clearly. What's the word should mean? In the, in the context of a military coup, what does it mean to say "should"? Just tell me. Yeah, you have well. to explain that.
2: Okay, but also, you know, kind of looking back on the circumstances under which you you kind of left, um, has anything changed as a result of it? It was, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement. Uh, have, have do you think anything's changed in cable news as a result? Not just not just of your departure, but you know, of the larger movement.
1: I don't know. Oh, I think it. Uh, in my case, I uh, I just tried to. Do the right thing, and admit what I had said and what was reported was true verbatim, and it was wrong. And um, it was it's wrong to comment on people's appearance in the makeup room or anywhere else. You shouldn't be talking about people's appearance. It's I've been very uh, I take a little pride in the fact that I did for the beginning. My wife was an anchor woman in D.C. for years, and I knew all about the need for gender equality in the workplace. And I tried to make it when I did the Sunday show, for example. I said. Two men, two women every week, no exception. And I'm proud of the fact that some of the people like Yamiche Cinder and, and uh, Joy Reed, and Nora O'Donnell and Heidi Preswell and all this all started on my show. I love the fact they all became very significant people today in the media. And uh, where I was wrong is commenting on people's appearance and I did it on the air a number of times. And uh, I was wrong. It ain't complicated. Did that affect everybody? I'm sure people noticed that I was gone for doing it. I mean, I, was, I it was reported one day, the next day I was gone. That's pretty dramatic evidence you shouldn't do it. Do,
2: do, do you think in general, though, that the, the rest of the media has sort of picked up on the clues? Or, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking back on what's been... I don't know the, if
1: anybody else was doing what I was doing wrong. I may have been the only one doing it, but I had...
2: Oh, I'm really, pretty sure you were
1: comments <laughs> of his appearance, and it was always meant to be. I could argue positive, but it wasn't good behavior, and uh, it was uh, bad manners, at minimum. I mean, at minimum. It was worse than that. It was uh, wrong. And look, you got a lot of time to think about these, Victoria. I've had since last February to think about what I did, and uh, I uh, I have to take the measure. I have to take the lesson to heart.
0: Well, uh, it led you uh, to produce this book, This Country, My Life and Politics and History. Um, I've got two very quick. Uh, these questions um, are unanswered. Observations. By the way.
1: You give me <laughs> questions that cannot. Why are we wrong? Why do we fail? <laughs> why can't we? Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> know, you can try these on everybody. I give you one theory. Yeah. Vietnam. Something happened there. But it seemed Yeah, the, uh, but Vietnam
0: was way before Reagan and Tip O'Neill were cutting deals. That so was, you know, it was a decade before. And and the country moved on. And the country the, our you know democracy I think, I think was I, able I, I to function. I
1: don't hate many people. I hate very few people. I don't want to hate anybody, but I think Mitch McConnell's is personally responsible for this. He's a very smart, shrewd politician. He can survive. He can take some risks for the old style politics of deal making. He could do it. But look what he did with uh, the Supreme Court decision when he was still doing this. Eric Garland. of Garland was so partisan. Why does he have to be that partisan? I don't know. All right.
0: Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, just two final quick points. Uh, I did not know until I read it in your book that you started out working for Capitol Hill News Service, the old Ralph Nader outfit. That's where I worked about two years later.
1: Well, it was a great start. It became State News service. And, uh, yeah. you know, we didn't make, I don't want you, I made 8000 a year, no expense. That's, that, no, that's what I made as well. And if you take a cab, you pay, okay? Yeah, and yeah. You want to get no back, expense you know. account. But you know what I liked about it? I was a journalist, recognized in the, in the gallery. We were totally accepted in the gallery as journalists from the beginning. We were legitimate. We didn't make any money, but we got to work out of the National Press Building. And when you filed your story at night, you felt good about yourself. I loved it. I thought that was great journal. And Nader was as clean as you can be. It was, I was proud to say Nader was behind all this stuff. And uh, yeah. I loved it. I, we met congressmen. They did not, these guys that had never been interviewed, you know, these guys right. in Pennsylvania, Dan flood, people like that had never been interviewed by anybody. And they yeah. you'd have to grab them in the hallway and then say, stuff. one guy said to me, We have really nice parties at our office every year, really nice parties. And if you write good stuff about me, you might get invited. I said, I probably said, do people fall for this?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, back then, I was trying to get interviews with members of Congress and United States senators. And that just cuts to my second observation 2004 Democratic convention, and a United States senator comes up to me at some cocktail party reception and tells me, yeah, I really want to tell you, I enjoyed watching you on hardball. You made some excellent points. And it was um, Barack Obama, the first <laughs> time, time yeah. I ever spoke to him. So uh, he was a loyal watcher of hardball That's great. Uh, even then.
1: Remember when I said, Michael, I said, the, day, the minute after you gave that speech in Boston in 2004, the keynote, I said, you just heard. You've just seen the first African-American president. In fact, Michelle in her book said she would kid him about that. She called Mr. President after 2004.
3: So. All right. I've got, I got one, one observation before we let you go. Anybody who reads this book, it's full of great anecdotes and, uh, and just pearls of wisdom about politics. If you want to get into politics, what surprised me is that I learned a Yiddish word from two Irish Catholics. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, the word temler. Tumblr. That, that Tumblr. You, Tumblr that you got from John McLaughlin, you got, uh, from John <laughs> McLaughlin of uh, the McLaughlin group. Um, and, and and I guess he was t- calling you a Tumblr who yeah. is a uh, uh, like those were the entertainers from the Catskills resorts. Um, Up in the
1: mountains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. were yeah. on a rainy day, Pinky Lee, people like that for these names, you know, uh, Pinky Lee, I was thinking of all the other names. The guy who, they are all these all Jewish guys. They were comedians. They're so funny. And their job, uh, you know, Zero Mustel would be a classic. And their job was to liven up the day when it's raining up there in the, in the mountains. So somebody paid for a week at the resort and it's raining on a Tuesday. They got to show up and make the, uh, the the women there especially enjoy the afternoon, shaking it up. This is their job was a tumult. It'd be tumult.
3: So Pinky Lay... Zero Mostel and Chris Matthews <laughs> exactly I think we end on that no, I note I yeah.
1: think the ham and Jewish
0: alright Chris thanks thanks Good luck, luck with, with the book. book you're a great man Michael thank you so
1: alright <laughs> thank you <laughs>